1: you have this to India phenomenon and the world comes in to India and sees the Indian designer wear, well and assumes that that is India and that is a fundamental error and more importantly even worse than that it's a fundamental error based on very ephemeral data which is being interpreted
0: completely incorrectly that was Ashoka Modi welcome to the exchange a conversation with business people, policymakers, and experts around the world. India's $3 trillion economy is suddenly on the map for global executives. It's growing at a speedy 7%, and its low income per capita dangles the promise of Chinese style growth. India is benefiting too from worsening relations between Washington and Beijing as companies and fund managers start to shift their supply chains and investments outside of the People's Republic into geographies at lower risk of Western sanctions. I'm Una Ghilani, Asia editor of Breaking Views, the financial commentary arm of Reuters. In this episode of The Exchange, I sat down with Ashoka Modi, a former director at the IMF and author of India is Broken. Welcome, Ashoka, to The Exchange. A pleasure to have you here. Your book is a sweeping look at India's economic policy since the country's independence in 1947. It's beautifully written and jarringly gloomy at the same time, if you don't mind me saying so. Um, I want to zero on a key question to start with. You know, at this particular moment of time, Apple is opening stores and building out its supply chain in the country. Wealth managers are arriving every week en masse into Mumbai and Delhi, looking for big opportunities. Morgan Stanley expects India to become the world's third largest economy and stock market before the end of the decade. Is this finally India's moment?
1: Short answer, no. Uh, Longer answer, all these people who are beating the drum on India, I don't think understand India. And more importantly, I fear that this is another bout of. Wishful thinking clothed in bad economics. Just on the facts. uh, India is the fastest growing economy is not a fact. I know that if you repeat something a million times, it becomes a fact, but uh, just because people repeat it, it does not make it true. What is what happened was that during the during COVID, India yo-yoed much more than other major economies did. And what you saw in the early part of last year was India was coming back from a a large dip. And so the average 7% number that you just cited, which is a correct number, is really 15 or 16% in the first quarter after which there has been a steady slowdown. So yes, there was a dead cat bounce and now there's a slowdown. If you average it over the COVID period, we it's three and a half percent a year. The the year before COVID, we're also three and a half percent. So according to me, the data is telling us that India's GDP growth is likely to grow around three and a half percent a year. You cannot take the recovery from a large dip and extrapolate it into the future. That's basically fundamentally wrong. For the rest, yes, there is some movement out of China, but let me just make it clear again, the facts there are, there is very little movement out of China so far. People have been anticipating for a long time, but the big movement occurring from the coastal provinces of China is going into the interior of China. So the Chinese are moving into their interior. The Chinese interior is the fastest growing export economy in the world right now the rest is going to the RCEP countries a trade grouping that that india consciously chose not to participate in because indian firms and indian farmers were afraid of the competition that would come in if import tariffs were lowered so a large part of that is going to vietnam and other parts of the uh, south asian countries and yes there is this one example of apple it's one example and maybe, and I'm not saying this cannot happen. Maybe this is the trigger, and this is the the future. That this is a leading indicator of something or the other. But yes, Apple is opening its stores because iPhones are selling to a rich India. But the sales of iPhones is actually has fallen in the last past in the past year. Uh, so you have this to India phenomenon, and the world comes in to India and sees the Indian designer well, and assumes that that is India. And that is a fundamental error. And more importantly, even worse than that, it's a fundamental error based on very ephemeral data, which is being interpreted completely incorrectly.
0: That's That's really interesting. It definitely sets the scene for this discussion. I'd like to come back to focusing on GDP, and start with one of the last things you touched on there. You mentioned two Indias. Obviously, there's only one India, but when you say there are two Indias, can you explain a little bit about what you mean exactly?
1: So there are about 70 million Indians. So India has a population of 1.4 billion. There are about 70 million people who are rich. Uh, And maybe there are about 40 million who have a per capita income of California? Yeah, so that India has essentially exited India. These people live in gated communities. They send their kids to elite private schools in India. They send their kids increasingly to schools abroad. Uh, they have their own piped water, they have uh, swimming pools and uh, 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 ex- extravagant water use. Uh, in other ways, and they have um, air cleaning mon- uh, devices in their cars, uh, and in their homes, they live. They live in a different India, and they yes, they will buy four hundred dollar Adidas shoes, but but there is another India, where in the height of summer and 43, 44 degrees, people cannot buy table fans, and this is in urban cities like in Delhi, so the. Large majority of India, according to my my understanding, and we have a problem over here. We have the reason we have a problem is the government has stopped publishing data. Of on, on very critical matters, but according to the uh, data that I have been able to piece together, there there are probably two thirds of Indians who live on less than $3 a day. So yes, there is this this screen. And, you know, if you go to the cultural center that Nita Ambani just recently inaugurated, yes, you are going to see uh, one India. And then you step away f- within a diameter of 10 kilometers and you have a different India.
0: It's interesting that you frame it like that because I think for many uh, global executives, investors, family wealth managers coming to India for the first time, you know, they, they're also trying to draw the line between the two India's they see. You know, you, you have the India in your hotel. It's very glitzy and shiny. Everything works. It's it, it's, uh, it, it's a it's a world class standard. And then you sort of step outside, and you know you've got the infrastructure, the potholes. Uh, depending on what city you're in, obviously Mumbai is a little bit worse than Delhi on that front. But you know, it, it's it, there is a sort of disconnect in terms of the. Uh, you just talked about the amount of people who live on less than three dollars a day. I mean, I think that's a really uh, shocking number, I think. But there is a debate about that, right? You know, what is the sort of crux of the debate on India's poverty rate?
1: The crux of the debate is is there is no data. It's as simple as that. And there was, in 2018-19, a survey done by the government. And that survey showed that people had become poorer since 2011. Just let that fact sink in, that... Between 2011 and 2018, the official data showed that people had become poorer, and the government rejected that data, saying that that's not possible. There was no no reason to believe that that data was wrong. So so the fact that the government rejected that data is itself a, a sign that there is some reason to try to hide those numbers. During COVID, every study shows that poverty increased. So if between 11 and 18 poverty increased and then it further increased during COVID, then the numbers are grim. Now, if you torture the data long enough, as Ronald Coase once said, it will confess. And so the government and its sympathizers are torturing the data in ways that shows that India has no poverty. My former boss at the IMF, Michael Musa used to say, a number has to pass the smell test. And anyone who says there's no poverty in India, that that is just not passing the smell test.
0: Well, obviously, one of the big numbers that we do have is we know that some 800 million people were eligible for food rations, uh, the extended sort of food ration scheme that was uh, given to people during uh, over the course of the pandemic. And so that's the sort of hard number that we do have to, to look at as Correct. well. Correct. I, I, As you said, a lot of the positive narrative uh, on India at the moment centres on GDP as a measure of the economy's success. But you, in your book, you prefer to look at jobs. It's actually the central thread that holds the whole book together. And, And you describe the failure of successive governments to address this. You spare no one from Nehru, the first prime minister of India, all the way to Modi. Can you explain... What exactly
1: is the jobs problem in India? OK, so numerically, the jobs problem is gargantuan, potentially insurmountable at this point. So the one thing that I tell my students, I never want to hear you use the phrase unemployment rate. Unemployment rate is a meaningless phrase for India because Most Indians cannot afford to be unemployed. Therefore, the Indian employment problem is a vast underemployment. People hang around. People share jobs. So the typical form of underemployment is that in a farm or a small business, there are family members who will share jobs. Six people will or five people will do the work of one person. And so you can, so to say, visualize a circumstance in which you take away five people from that work and economic activity will not fall. It is that that is a problem. So when people say Indian unemployment rate is 7%, it doesn't sort of sound like a terrible thing. But if you count the what I call the effective unemployment rate, we are somewhere in the range of 20%. And that, That is after the fact that a large portion, almost half the working age population, does not even bother to say they are looking for a job. So if you don't, if you don't bother to say you're looking for a job, you're not part of the unemployed or the underemployed. And then finally, those who do have work. Work largely in the so-called informal sector. They work often long hours on pitiful wages with no social security. The closest example for India is is Brazil. You have this phenomenon in Brazil of WhatsApp and favelas, of e-commerce and open sewers. And India is like that. So there are people who do have WhatsApp they live and work in situations that most people in in contemporary society would not consider you know something that we think is is a desirable outcome of 75 years of development and it is a series of errors but the core error was india's choice to not enter the global competitive race for labour-intensive exports. And India successively lost that race, first to Korea and Taiwan, then to China, and now to Vietnam.
0: Yeah, you say in your your book that, and this is the statistic that just sort of like really is mind-blowing, that India might need to generate something between 190 million to 210 million jobs over the next decade to clear the unemployment backlog and to fully employ its people. Fully employ hits at the point you're r- remarking towards about underemployment, so that Correct. people are gainfully and fully employed. Why has India failed to emulate that East Asian-style employment creation through that labour-intensive manufactured exports?
1: There are two central reasons, and there's a third, uh, more less central but important reason. The central reason is, that if you look back at economic progress for the last 250 years since the industrial revolution, there are two correlates of economic development, mass education and bringing more women into the workforce. There is no country, there is not a single country, there is no exception to this rule. No country has made progress without mass education and bringing women into the workforce. I'm saying this many times because this is a message that seems hard to even grasp. The the East Asian nations understood that. We talk about China, we talk about Chinese economic reform and so on, but the first World Bank report on China in 1981. What did it say? It said this is a country with excellent human capital and a high regard for women in the workplace and India has failed on both scores the structural basis for labor intensive exports in the last 50-70 years has have been these two factors and then there's a third factor and that is the exchange rate India has consistently maintained an overvalued exchange rate Now I'm putting on my IMF hat. The first part was the World Bank hat. The second part is the IMF hat. You have a currency that's overvalued. Who is interested in exporting? As it is, there are many domestic liabilities in terms of high transportation costs, poor logistics, this, that, and the other. And on top of that, you have an overvalued exchange rate. So you have an overvalued exchange rate, so you cannot attempt foreign buyers with low prices and you do not have the basis for high productivity production through mass education and women in the workforce. So you're squeezed on both ends, and that has been true for 75 years.
0: You talk about India being consistently overtaken by Japan, Taiwan, South Korea, China, then Vietnam, Bangladesh. What is the chance that this latest wave of foreign interest in India? I know you said that Apple was one example. I mean, I think there are probably a a few others as well, Um, you know, particularly in chips and semiconductors. But what is the chance that this latest wave of foreign interest in India might be able to foster some significant improvements? Because you say in your book that even Bangladesh actually managed to sort of It probably may not have done as well on the sort of human capital front as some of these other countries we referred to. But by virtue of attracting the investment, they were able to sort of start a bit more of a virtuous cycle. What is the chance that India might be able to do that? Okay.
1: Bangladesh, just to be clear, is a very modest success so far. This success measured by the Indian benchmark of of failure, Bangladesh is a success in the narrow area of garments. Bangladesh has not diversified into a broad range of labor-intensive products, like Vietnam has. And unless Bangladesh is able to get its act together, it's, it, there is every risk that Bangladesh, having shown this very, uh, very commendable uh, progress, may stall. I'm just gonna make one passing comment on your reference to chips. Number one, I don't believe that there's any investment in chips. And number two, let's stipulate there is. Chips, I have been studying semiconductors since 1984. I have actually visited the original semiconductor factory when it was set up in Korea. These are lights out factories. They don't create jobs. They Therefore, the idea that India should start its export drive-through chips at a time when the entire world is spending zillions of dollars to gear up their chip production, I think is is economic madness. Just, just so let's put that aside. What is the chance that they nevertheless, despite everything that I've said, this might trigger into something bigger and greater anything is possible i'm not saying it will not happen what i am saying is that history and economics as best we know it is extremely pessimistic on this score is extremely pessimistic on this score
0: one of the things you really vividly lay out in the book is in your in your in your sort of long history of the economic policy since independence is the macroeconomic vulnerabilities that India just kept hitting up against? You know, this just like the twin deficit problem in the sort of fiscal, the government account and the current account, Uh, the double digit inflation, the sort of low FX reserves. uh, How much of that macro and economic stability has been improved? And how much does that set a better backdrop to potential success for India?
1: Yeah, very good question. And and it is clear that the macroeconomic stability has improved uh, since the days when the reserves were beginning to run out. That is a story that I think more or less ended in the early 90s. Since then, the reserves position has been strong. And the reserves position being strong, let me just say, is a double-edged outcome. It is good because it imparts stability, as you quite rightly say. But just let's reflect on what is the source of that reserve buildup. It is remittances from Indians working abroad. It is uh, software exports, and it is portfolio flows uh, coming into India. What does that do? It it bids up the exchange rate. So it's good in that sense. But that exchange rate then bites the exporters. So yes. It is it is it is creating stability, but it is actually, if anything, working against the creation of jobs. So, the stability is good. No one no one can deny that. Uh, but there are then in internal bubbles. The external stability has has come, but then internal bubbles. And the biggest bubble in the internal bubble was the finance bubble between more or less. I would say early 90s to 2018, when ILNFS collapsed. And the reason I'm pessimistic on the growth outlook is that people are taking that bubble period, forgetting that after ILNFS collapsed, GDP growth rate had slowed down dramatically. Once the bubble burst, GDP growth had bub- uh, slowed down dramatically, and that slowed down is then reflected in the averages uh, through the covid period therefore the the domestic economic momentum when people say india is, is can grow again the question is on what basis on what basis what is the historical record of india growing fast india grew fast during a very particular time for very particular reasons World trade was growing rapidly. The the internal uh, financial sector was growing very rapidly. World trade growth has slowed down. Uh, The domestic bubble hopefully will not reemerge. The fact that credit is growing somewhat uh, uh, well now is okay, but if this it tends to become a bubble, then again, we will see the up and down. In fact, we will again have a, a, the type of instability that is that is bad for India.
0: You, you talked about the IT industry, and obviously yeah. that's been globally seen as one of the big successes of India. But you also sort of pointed out or alluded to the fact that it hasn't really created beyond. It's created a lot of foreign exchange, but it hasn't really created the jobs. And yeah. you're... Uh, and you're, and you're suggesting that there's a chance that India, even if India can be successful at attracting uh, manufacturing, global manufacturing, it may not create jobs. So my question to you is, why should investors care about this risk of jobless growth or this other India? What are, what are the risks for them?
1: Yeah, look, I mean, I can see the investor point of view. And that's been true since the early 90s. That they see this sort of you know wealthy India, as as a German journalist recently told me, you're talking about a size that is the German population. Yeah, maybe 70, 80 million people, are are can sustain uh, foreign investors. Yeah, that's cool. So as far as foreign investors are concerned, maybe that's a good thing. What I am saying though, is that if in the meantime, in part this causes an overvaluation of the exchange rate as investors come in. In part, there is a domestic discontent that is brewing in in the country. That domestic discontent is being channeled in in many different ways right now. Episodically, it bursts out into, into protests. So I would, even as an investor, I would say, yeah, look, you know, in the short term, this is great. I'm probably getting high returns. In a more medium term sense, you have to worry about it. Again, look at the foreign investors who are coming in. They're largely portfolio investors. The the, the ratio of direct investment coming to build factories and so on in China versus portfolio investment has been always the other way around. The, the, the real investment that comes in is to build factories and create jobs. Much of the money comes into Reliance and Ambani's and, and, and Adani's and such like people. You know, if you, if you look at the numbers, half a dozen of the large Indian corporates get a large, very large bulk of that money. So yes, maybe, maybe those guys are going to generate high returns for foreign investors and you know, more power to them. I'm not here to stand in their way. I am saying that from an Indian perspective, from a long-term perspective, it's not good. And what's not good for India at some level should not be good for foreign investors either.
0: You um, you have acknowledged in your book that by virtue of having an outright majority in parliament, Prime Minister Narendra Modi's government has been able to roll out uh, a number of good ideas that were sort of stuck under previous coalition governments, they weren't able to sort of get passed through parliament, I think it's so the bankruptcy law, for example, or the goods and services tax, you are critical of the of the implementation of some of these things. But one of the obviously we're running into elections season, uh, we have the national polls next year, Prime Minister R- R- Narendra Modi is extremely popular, most people think he will win an outright majority for a third time. But we can't really predict what's going to happen next year. What is the trade-off for India between an outright majority government and a coalition government? So, when Modi came to power, he was obviously the first person to have a majority government for about three decades, and that's continued. So, for many people who are coming into India, they've seen the same stable uh, or political environment for the last uh, sort of ten years, really more or less. Uh, so. What is that trade-off between outright majority and coalition government with regards to economic policymaking?
1: Okay, so you pointed out that I have been critical of successive governments. The reason I've been critical of successive governments is is the core failures. So the, the goods and services taxes, the bankruptcy stuff, all good. Yes, let's stipulate it's all good. There, there are lots of caveats, but let's stipulate it's all good. But the problem arises because no government has dealt with the fundamentals mass education, women in the workforce, good health, affordable health, workable cities, the judicial system is broken. The rivers are drying. Agriculture is in distress. Farm sizes are becoming smaller. That is what makes for long term development. A goods and services tax, yes, it is. No, I'm not saying it's not a good thing, but I'm saying that what is the big picture? What is what does history tell us about the? When the judicial system is broken, Which country has grown with a broken judicial system? Today, just to give you one statistic, 77% of prisoners in Indian prisons are what are called under trials. What does that mean? These are people in prison, not because they are convicted, but because they are awaiting trial. And sometimes they wait for trial for one, two, three, four, five years. For periods longer than the sentences they would have got if they had been convicted. There's custodial torture. The share of pol- politicians with criminal backgrounds in, in every state legislature and in the Indian parliament has increased. Today, the Lok Sabha, the national parliament, 29% of the legislators have a criminal charge of seriousness against them rape, murder kidnapping, extortion, that kind of charge. So I I don't believe that when the basic norms and accountability of a system are broken, the tinkering at the edges through these specific policies creates for long-term growth. There's nothing in history that tells me that that is possible.
0: A few people have Remarked, including Raghuram Rajan, a former governor of the Reserve Bank of India, that the book is short on solutions, and obviously, it's actually meant to be primarily a history of economic policy. So it's not it's not proposing to offer solutions. But do you have any?
1: Look, I, I and you know, Ragu is, a, is is a man I admire enormously. I, I think you should also tell your listeners of the first part of Ragu's. Uh, Raghu's statement where he is very complimentary of the book and its analysis. <laughs> uh, and the point I've been trying to make, which I try to make in the book, is that there is no policy that will work where the norms and accountability are broken. Okay? That's, that's the fundamental premise of the book that the failure lies not in in, in in the lack of good policies. Yes, there have been bad policies. But if today I say, you know, improve your inflation targeting or improve your exchange rate management or improve fiscal management, say, you know, how does that matter? I'm saying improve mass education. Now you say to me, that's not a policy. Tell me more specific. I can tell you more specific. But the point is that there has to be a government that has to show a commitment to this. Government in Karnataka has just been elected. Do I see mass education on their agenda? Yes. They, you know. Do I see health on their agenda? Do I see jobs on their agenda? Do I see judicial reform on their agenda? The, the, the system has gone into a bad equilibrium. What I mean by a bad equilibrium is that the Indian elite have decided that technologically leapfrogging through information technology and handouts to, to voters to appease them and keep them beholden, that is economic policy. And what I'm saying is shift your vision from there to a more wholesome policy package that improves the livability of people. And that is my policy recommendation. For that, I say you need more accountability by going into a more decentralized governance mechanism. And that is where the norms and trust and accountability will increase. I call this a bad equilibrium because when everyone behaves in an unaccountable way, it is in no one's incentive to be accountable. And so you are in a catch-22, because the first instinct is to cheat, both in public and private life. And so it is the the problem. in, In trying to search for a specific policy, we are ducking the question, the fundamental question, of creating norms and accountability.
0: Well, thank you, Ashoka, for joining us today. I think your book is definitely a must read for anybody who wants to understand Indian economic uh, policy and its history. Uh, not everyone will agree with it, but it's uh, but it's fascinating and it's very thought-provoking. Um, and it's an interesting counterweight to sort of all the positivity we see around India at the moment in terms of the economic opportunity. So thank you very much, Ashoka, for your time today.
1: Thank you. Thank you very much for having me.
0: Thanks for tuning into The Exchange. This podcast was produced by Pranav Kiran in Bangalore. You can find more episodes on Apple or your favourite podcast app. Also check out our sister podcast, The Views Room. And check us out at BreakingViews.com and on Twitter, where our handle is at BreakingViews.